government is planning to lift the ban on commercial cruise ships by this October. That's the word from our tourism minister, who's in Australia to promote Aotearoa after last year's travel bubble blip. But I fully expect that cruise will be back and operating uh, up and down the coast, uh, you know, all, all the magic spots they used to call into by October. We're anticipating now the first ship back on the 16th of October. It will be 946 days, and that is a big has been a big struggle for a lot of Kiwi businesses. We're expecting you. Jubilation from the tourism industry at the news. Our maritime borders will reopen from the end of July, bringing cruise ships here in time for the summer season, and with them all the lovely money their passengers will throw around at their ports of call. But is it really a lot of money? And is it really the brand of tourism the country is looking for? I think it's fair to say that everything has changed since COVID. There's been lots of discussion and debate around the tourism that we had at the end of 2019 and what the tourism is that we might want as borders reopen and uh, as we begin to reconnect with the world and reconnect with tourism in the post-COVID era. Kia ora, I'm Alexia Russell and today on The Detail, is it time for a rethink about cruise ships? Is it the type of tourism the Minister Stuart Nash wants? I think um, his comments were interesting, weren't they? Because he was um, wanting the high net worth, high value um, travellers and cruise passengers easily fit into that mould. Speaking of mould, I'm going to get the germ question out of the way first. If you think people would be reluctant to get on board a boat that might end up being a floating COVID cot case, you'd be wrong. The industry says more than 12 million people around the world, including many New Zealanders, have already sailed in 90 countries that opened up before us. House of Travel's cruise expert Jeff Leckie has just been on three different European cruises. When you're actually out there and you're back on the ships, you can see the level that they've gone to to um, enable a safe return to cruising. Um, and, and really, the cruise companies have gone above and beyond any other category in the tourism sector, really, to ensure a safe return. What do you mean by safe return? What sort of safety measures are in place? Passengers have to be fully vaccinated to get on board. Um, you have to return a negative test before you can actually board the ship. Usually it's uh, within 24 hours of boarding. Um, once you're on board ship, um, the health and safety protocols have really been taken to another level. You'll see constant cleaning of all the public areas. Um, the staff on board um, do wear masks. Um, the passengers don't have to. It's, it's optional, but um, the crew definitely do all the time. The ships themselves have really efficient air conditioning systems that brings fresh air from the outside into the individual cabin. So it's not recirculated air conditioning. And um, so, you know, all these things that, um, you know, we're, we're sort of two years down the line now. So um, a lot of lessons have been learned about the safe way to travel um, on board ship. And, you know, certainly I, I was, as I mentioned, I was on three different ships with three different cruise lines. And it was consistent right across that I saw those protocols working really, really well. So the ships laden with hand sanitizer are on their way back. But not everyone wants things to return to the state they were in before the lockdowns. The tourism minister is warning the industry cannot and should not try to turn back the clocks and return to its former glory. Stuart Nash gave the opening address at the Virtual Otago Tourism Policy School today, calling on the industry to step up as a regenerative sector. COVID-19 changed the world and we can't expect that tourism will remain unchanged. 
We're unlikely to see an immediate return to 2019 levels, but nor should we want to. It was unsustainable and some of our communities were bearing the brunt of this impact. James Hyam is a professor of tourism at the University of Otago, where the minister spoke in March. This year uh, and in, uh, last year as well, the, the minister spoke very much about how we need to take this opportunity to reset the operating model for tourism, uh, to reset it onto a far more sustainable and resilient basis. This year, the minister mentioned that we have an opportunity to reshape tourism so that when the border reopens, visitors and the sector and our local communities are able to operate on a much improved model. So in summary, the minister has said very clearly that the status quo cannot be the model uh, for the direction of tourism in the future uh, because it in the past has been unsustainable uh, and it has lacked resilience. And uh, he has stated very clearly that we won't go back to how it was. Now, that obviously raises the question of, fine, uh, if not, what will the future for tourism look like? And that's where a lot of our focus now lies. When he says it won't go back to what it was, what particular visitors was he suggesting should we should sort of not allow in? Which ones should we be encouraging? Mm. So, so the debate hasn't focused so much on uh, types of visitors or who we should be letting in or not letting in, so to speak. But at a, at a, at a broader level, the pre-COVID tourism was based very much on uh, visitor numbers, visitor arrivals, uh, numbers of visitors uh, and economic uh, impacts, the, the economic outcomes uh, of tourism, a very strong economic focus. But that lacked um, sufficient attention on some really, really important aspects of tourism, which we now realise we can no longer ignore. So over the last 30 or more years, the global tourism model has moved very much towards uh, increasing regularity of travel, increasing distance and speed of travel, increasing carbon emissions, therefore reducing length of stay. So average length of stay globally has decreased over time and in fact, increasing leakage. So the money that tourists spend at a destination has increasingly leaked out of those local communities because of um, external ownership of tourism infrastructure, uh, because of the platform economy and, um, and payment systems. So the, uh, the positive economic impacts of tourism uh, were increasingly drawn, drawn into question alongside obviously growing concerns around the environmental costs of, uh, of hosting visitors. And those environmental costs are obviously particularly acute for long-haul destinations that are visited primarily by way of aeroplane or cruise ship. So that's us, New Zealand. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. And uh, so we, we do have some major challenges that we need to confront. We need to accept and internalise and respond to some major challenges. Did the amount of domestic tourism being done in the in the last couple of years, you know, New Zealand is just rediscovering their own backyards, has that been part of this shift? Very much so. I um, am particularly interested uh, in the carbon footprint of different discrete visitor markets. The carbon footprint of our different markets is determined almost entirely by transportation use and distance of travel. 
Our longer haul markets have a far higher carbon footprint than our medium or short haul markets. And when it comes to transportation, our domestic tourists are already here. They don't need to fly to get here. So the uh, tourist uh, spender of domestic tourists is advantageous in that it contributes to um, the economy, but without the high CO2 that comes with particularly long-haul international arrivals. Hyam says there have been growing calls for greater scrutiny of some sectors of the tourism market, which bring different costs and benefits to the country. That scrutiny includes thinking about what each sector brings to the four capitals, that's economic, environment, social and cultural. And when we do that, we find that obviously different markets uh, have, have different, very different profiles. And then we become, can become more discerning in which markets we want to encourage, which markets bring the greatest net benefits to New Zealand environment and society, um, and perhaps also which markets we want to scrutinise more closely and perhaps um, uh, be less keen to uh, further develop, so to speak. Not necessarily to exclude those markets, but if they do come with high costs, then we need to make them perhaps more accountable for those costs and use that approach to, uh, to maximising or optimising our, our, our tourism industry, our, our, the contribution that tourism makes to New Zealand. So who makes the greatest contribution to those when you look at, in the, at in the, under the eye of those four markets? Who, who are the best tourists, the ones that we really like to encourage to come here? Well, ideally, the, the ideal visitor market is one that is reasonably close by. Uh, that immediately include domestic uh, and uh, eastern seaboard Australia. Uh, and those are, of course, our two uh, strongest markets. They are incredibly important. Australia and, and New Zealand uh, collectively, Australia International and New Zealand Domestic, uh, represents a very, very high proportion of total visitor spend in, in uh, regional economies in New Zealand. Of course, we also want markets that spend time here. There's, a, 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 of course, a very direct relationship between length of stay and visitor expenditure and, and, and carbon footprint per dollar uh, contribution to GDP. So we want visitors who don't have to travel too far, preferably. Uh, obviously, we need to be realistic about that because a lot of our markets are, are um, medium and, and long haul. But uh, in those cases, we really want uh, visitors who stay for a long time. Uh, one of our greatest yielding markets is, in fact, our international student market because they spend a semester here or a year. Uh, and in some cases, they spend several years here. PhD students are typically in this country for at least three and usually closer to four years. And because of that, they have lots of opportunity to function as tourists, so to speak, because when they're here, they explore the country naturally, um, but uh, they also have abundant opportunity to, to spend in local and regional economies, and they are incredibly uh, important to, uh, to New Zealand's economy. So distance of travel, um, expenditure patterns, link to length of stay, those are really crucial variables for us. So under those variables, cruise ship passengers would be about bottom of the list, wouldn't they? <laughs> well, uh to be honest, um, I think that's a, a pretty accurate uh, summary as things currently stand. So Cruise has this image of, of, of luxury and opulence and, and high economic value. 
but um, we need to look more critically at um, those expenditure patterns because cruise liners are overseas owned. Passengers spend the vast majority of their time on the cruise ship rather than on shore. Their uh, shore excursions and their their port visits uh, are typically quite short. Uh, They have most of their meals, if not all of their meals provided on board. So the onshore spend can, can, be, can be very, very disappointingly small. Naturally, Jeff Leckie doesn't see it that way. When you're on a cruise and you're visiting a... So like, let's say you're travelling around New Zealand. Um, so anyone visiting here would want to do shore excursions because our ports aren't necessarily next to our big attractions. If you think Tauranga is the port for Rotorua, so anyone who visits Tauranga is going to take a shore excursion to Rotorua. Those shore excursions, although they're booked with the cruise company, they're facilitated by New Zealand tourism operators. So that money is going into our economy. It's supporting those local tourism operators in our different ports. Because I know personally, every time I do a shore excursion, I'm spending $100, $200. I'm eating in local cafes. I'm buying things in shops. However, the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research says pre-COVID, cruise tourism, while accounting for about 9% of international visitor arrivals, was only 3% of international tourist spending. We know very little about this, and, uh, and we really need to be more rigorous in, uh, in how we look into um, aspects of cruise passenger expenditures and contribution to regional economies. And we need to do the same uh, for environmental, social and cultural capital. Um, There are lots of questions that remain unanswered in terms of the contributions of the cruise industry to those four capitals. The environmental impacts of cruise ships have been causing concern for a long time now. The detail touched on this in an episode two years ago. They only violated environmental laws but 800 times in a year. That's okay. So they got a $20 million fine on top of that. That's just the price of doing business because it's cheaper to pay $60 million in fines than it is to be environmentally responsible. We do have cruise ships uh, visiting some very fragile and protected uh, environments in this country, the uh, the fjords, um, the uh, places like Rakiura, Stewart Island. That raises questions around carbon emissions, but also air pollution and uh, particulates. I mean, not just in, in those remote and pristine and beautiful environments, but also at ports uh, that people live adjacent to. In our urban destinations, we should be concerned about air pollution and and public health. But there are also questions around consumption and waste on board ships, energy consumption, discharge of effluent and wastewater, perhaps in international waters. So there there are questions there that that currently lack scrutiny and transparency. But the other other point that I, I would really highlight is that Research has shown that cruise liners emit the highest per capita levels of carbon within New Zealand's tourism sector. Uh, And of course, this is due to their function as self-contained floating resorts. They transport everything that passengers need um, from point to point. So that comes with a, a very high carbon footprint. Cruise ships also tend to burn heavy fuel oil, so a very dirty energy source. A study that was conducted a few years ago at Otago calculated that the energy demands of accommodation on cruise ships is 12 times higher than the value for land-based hotel accommodation. But Jeff Leckie says cruise companies used the pandemic break to improve their green credentials and things are slowly changing. 
there are 17 brand new ships launching this year. Um, and what's happened during the last two years is a lot of the cruise lines have retired their older, more inefficient ships that cost them more money. So there's been a lot of smarts go on during the last 18 months where, um, you know, the, the cruise lines are operating incredibly efficiently now. And the newer ships, as they come out, they're obviously more eco-efficient. They're the, the new wave of ships. So they've got all the latest um, things on board that... Um, celebrity was a great example there's no single use plastic on board um so they've done away with the water bottles they've done a, you know there are there are water stations around the ship they used recycled little metal bottles now for water um yeah it's nice to see all that sort of stuff which has kind of been a benefit of the last 18 months where the cruise lines have had a chance to pause and think about how do we do this going forward what can we improve what efficiencies are there yeah, it's great to see them they're meeting the criticisms in some way, but the big criticism has been the fuel they use. You know, how many of these refreshed ships are on hydrogen or other eco methods of transport? Well, the the latest ships that are coming out, there are a large number of LNG ship powered ships, which is the the current best fuel for cruise ships that we're still waiting for those um fuels to be developed as time goes on. But you'll see um, the, the latest ships coming out of the shipyards are often LNG-powered, which is a much cleaner fuel. And I, th- and I think that's a, that's a nod towards the future. The challenge um, with anything really, Alexa, is the availability of those fuels around the world. Um, and so it's all very well saying all ships will be LNG, but is there enough supply of LNG in the Caribbean, in the South Pacific, in Alaska? You know, So mm. it, it's baby steps, but it's going in the right direction. Um, you've even got some of the new some of the new expedition ships are hybrid electric. So you've got um, Penance, um new expedition ship, Le Commandant Charcot, is a hybrid electric vessel. You've got um, Hurtigruten's expedition ships are the same. So those are the smaller ships. Yeah, this, mm. that's right. Yeah, the smaller expedition ships. Which, of course, if you're going to go hybrid electric, it has to be a smaller ship, right? Because of the technology around the batteries and the power, but. It's great to see that, particularly from those ships that are going to sail in the more um, uh, sensitive parts of the world, like the poles. I mean, I know there are moves. I see in Australia, after complaints that Sydney was a dumping ground for the cruising industry's oldest and dirtiest vessels, they've decided to expedite a, a power cable so that at least they're not running on the generator to operate the ship while they're in port. Yeah, and that's an investment that's required by the port companies because a lot of these new ships that are coming out, they're fitted for shore power. And that was really interesting when I boarded Celebrity Beyond in Southampton. That was plugged into the shore power. So none of the onboard engines were running while that ship was in port. Um, there's a, I was reading a report yesterday that the ports in Germany are doing the same thing, um, that they're moving to more and more shore power. So as these new ships come out and they're enabled for it, Again, it's down to the individual um, ports around the world to have that facility. And, and certainly Sydney would be a classic example of, you know, if there was shore power there available and the ships were enabled to, to use it, they absolutely would. Overcrowding is another issue. And Venice, for example, has now moved cruise ships to another port an hour and a half away from the city. Dubrovnik has negotiated a timetable with cruise lines. As for overwhelmed Akaroa near Christchurch, the new cruise berth in Littleton is finished now, so that situation should ease. In Auckland, where in 2018 131 cruise ships docked and cruise tourism was estimated to be worth around $200 million a year, 
there was a plan to extend Queen's Wharf to cater for megaboats. It was strongly opposed and now it's been shelved because of the council's financial constraints. The economic model for cruise is very much geared to um, serve the cruise industry, not the destinations that are actually critically important and in fact central to the cruise model. So as an example, a few years ago, most cruise ships coming to Aotearoa, New Zealand would offer optional full-day shore excursions. Now, when passengers come on shore for a full-day shore excursion, they tend to have some opportunities to spend in the local economy. But over time, there's been a shift to optional half-day rather than full-day shore excursions, which means that passengers coming back on board the ship for their middle-of-the-day meal. And maybe they stay on board after returning from a half-day excursion. So they're spending little time on shore, and in recent years, even less time on shore because of this move to half-day shore excursions in many cases. That, that further detracts from the economic contribution that cruise passengers are bringing into our local and regional economies. And perhaps that's something that, uh, that should be confronted um, because it really risks reducing destinations and host communities to places of production where uh, the cruise industry profits from bringing visitors into those communities, but the communities themselves do not benefit. And James Heim isn't completely against cruise ships. He says the smaller boutique ships are more likely to be run along better environmental lines and engage passengers with local guides, lecturers and interpreters. He says that tends to mean they're far more likely to spend when they come ashore. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to James Hyam and Jeff Leckie. Ka kite anō.